Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Aquarium of the Pacific. My name is Sandy Troutwine, and I'm the Vice President of Husbandry here at the Aquarium. Before we get started, I would just like to ask everyone to please turn off or silence their cell phones and mobile devices, and please refrain from texting during the presentation. Thank you for your cooperation. First, I would like to say thank you to our lecture sponsors, the Gazette Newspapers and Courtyard Marriott. Tonight, I am pleased to welcome one of our finest husbandry members, Miss Katie Finch. She is an aquarium mammalogist who will be discussing her work in conservation with piping plovers in the Great Lakes region. Katie has spent part of her bird and mammal team career here at the aquarium since 2015. She previously worked as a researcher, trainer, at the Pinniped Cognition and Sensory Systems Lab in Santa Cruz, where she trained Arctic seals and California sea lions to be active participants in sensory hearing tests. Katie also attended the University of California in Santa Cruz, where she studied ecology and evolutionary biology. And it was during this time that she first gained experience and a passion for working with birds in the field context. It is my pleasure to welcome Ms. Katie Finch. Katie? Thank you, Sandy. Can you guys hear me okay? Is the mic? Awesome. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Sandy. Uh, like she said, my name is Katie. I have been um, here on the husbandry, husbandry team at the Aquarium of the Pacific for now about four years. Um, and before I get started, I kind of just wanted to say that I feel really lucky to get to work at an institution um, that puts a lot of value in not only working with animals in a conservation research context within the walls of our aquarium, but also outside the walls of our aquarium. Um, and that's a big part of what what this project is about. Uh, the Great Lakes Piping Plover is a critically endangered bird uh, in the Great Lakes area that has truly benefited from um, institutions like ours that have kind of begun, gone beyond the, the normal kind of just caretaking for animals within, within their institutions kind of boundaries. Um, so I'm gonna go in a little bit more about that and kind of take you through this awesome journey that I got to go on uh, earlier this year, or excuse me, last year. Um, so overall tonight, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about uh, who the piping plover is, uh, introduce you to the Great Lakes piping plover and why you should love it so much, uh, talk a little bit about their natural history and behavior, uh, some of the threats to the species and the reason that it is so critically endangered in the Great Lakes area, um, I'll go into the specifics of the Great Lakes Piping Plover Recovery Project, which is a mouthful, but it really is an amazing organization. Um, and it involves uh, a couple different elements. It involves um, really heavily uh, monitoring uh, of the natural or the wild populations out in the Great Lakes area, uh, which involves a lot of citizen science as well as, as paid staff um, who do that work. And then the part that the aquarium has really been, played a big role in is the rehabilitation, the chick rearing and release of those rehabilitated chicks into their natural habitat. I'll talk a little bit about the successes of the project, um, why we care in the first place, why this little 
kind of small sand-colored bird that looks like a lot of other little sand-colored birds uh, matters. Um, and then the importance of the collaboration of all these different institutions and how that has played a role in um, the revival of this species. Uh, so this is the star of our show. This is the piping plover. Um, it looks, like I said, looks a lot like a lot of other uh, plover species, a lot of shorebird species. Probably the easiest way to tell it apart from a lot of other bird species is he has this cute little unibrow right here uh, between his two eyes. They also have this big uh, kind of bold black band. Um, and, and this is actually their breeding plumage, so their, uh, the colors of their feathers will change a little bit um, throughout the year. Um, but those are kind of, kind of the primary ways to tell them apart from a lot of the other shorebirds um, that do look pretty similar. They also have these very orange legs, as you can kind of see there. Uh, but some of the other birds that people sometimes get them confused with include uh, killdeer, which we see a lot around here, um, semi-palmated plover, uh, the snowy plover, which is kind of the other endangered West Coast counterpart to the piping plover. Um, and then this is a sanderling, which kind of looks a lot like what the piping plover looks like during uh, its uh, winter plumage. Um, now, when we're talking about the piping plovers, in this project, we were working primarily with the uh, Great Lakes population of the piping plovers. But there are actually three distinct populations of these birds. Um, this yellow part is, shows you where the northern Great Plains population um, exists. Over on the east coast, we have the Atlantic coast population, uh, and then we have just the little Great Plains, or excuse me, Great Lakes population here. Um, so there's three distinct populations. Um, the Great Lakes population is the one that is um, in by far the most trouble. Um, the other two populations are also considered threatened, but the Great Lakes population uh, has never been a huge population of birds, and it's the one um, that has kind of fallen into some trouble uh, in the last century or so. Um, as far as their life history, uh, like I said, they're, mig they're migrating bird. Uh, they migrate from uh, September through April. And if you can see down here, this is where the birds will all head in the winter months to the Caribbean, Mexico, Florida kind of area. Yeah, and uh, um, when they fly back to their nesting areas, uh, the males will start displaying in early April. Males will display four territories as well as to attract mates. Um, they'll actually fly around a desired territory. They have a distinct wing beat. They'll also be calling a lot. Um, and they'll try to attract a female as well as kind of claim a territory. Um, the males are also the ones that will construct their nests. And their nests are very elaborate structures. I'll show you a picture of one. Just kidding. <laughs> that is what, this is what a piping plover nest looks like. Um, and this is kind of part of the problem for the piping plover. Um, but this is actually, if you know very much about shorebirds, this is actually pretty common in a lot of species of shorebirds. Uh, this little nest is called a scrape. It's literally just a little indentation in the sand. Um, the plovers will pretty much always lay four eggs in that little um, kind of uh, formation just like you see there. Um, and because it's so exposed, both parents are really required for nest defense and for incubation of the eggs. So they'll pretty much kind of just trade off always having one parent sitting on the eggs while the other one will go around hunting for food. 
Um, like I said, there's always four eggs. Uh, but one really interesting thing about this species and um, about the chicks when they hatch is they're incredibly precocial. So like a lot of other shorebirds, once they hatch, they're pretty much ready to go. After, um, within about 24 hours, they're actually running around hunting on their own. Um, they don't really need a ton of parental care um, other than just sort of to protect them in those first, uh, those first couple days. Um, and they're actually able to fly after 24 days, and from then on, they're pretty much independent. Um, so, like we said, this is a critically endangered bird. Uh, it faces a lot of different threats out in its natural habitat. Uh, some of those threats uh, are natural. Um, there are a lot of different raptor species that will go after the plovers, um, different falcons, uh, other kinds of birds of prey. Um, snowy owls have actually become an increasing problem for the plovers. Um, and that is, they think, because, because of the, some of the colder winters the Midwest has been having, some of the rodent populations have been diminishing. So snowy owls have been looking for alternative prey than their usual rodent prey. Um, and they've been seeing them more along the beaches in the Great Lakes area, going after plovers, um, which was not usually part of their kind of prey re repertoire. Um, but really, the biggest issue for piping plovers is us and all the kind of coastal development that has happened around the Great Lakes area. Um, Really around the turn of the century, around 1900, um, that's when we think that the plovers um, were kind of at their highest in population. Um, but around that time, the Great Lakes area um, was getting more and more popular. Beach recreation was becoming more and more popular. Hunting, um, just for sport, market hunting, collecting was also pretty popular then. Um, and one of the biggest issues for the piping plover was that they were never a huge population to begin with. Uh, in the Great Lakes area anyway. So from the get-go, there were probably only at most around 800 nesting pairs in the Great Lakes area. Um, so when the population was really diminished, because of all these things we were talking about, um, it's always been really hard for them to recover. Um, so you can see just how much, uh, how far they were kind of distributed around the Great Lakes area. Um, and this is actually 2007, so this is since some of the recovery efforts have happened. Um, at their worst, in the early 80s, there were about 13 nesting pairs of the piping plover in the Great Lakes area. And that's around when the Great Lakes Piping Plover Recovery Project started. Um, now this project really is a huge collaborative effort. As you can see, this isn't even all of the groups that are involved in the Piping Plover Recovery Project. Uh, it's mostly um, over, uh, oversought by US Fish and Wildlife can see up here, along with um, a ton of different land management agencies, lots of national park services, uh, US Forest, Forest Service. Um, when it comes to the rehabilitation, the chick rearing part of the project, um, there's a variety of um, zoos and aquariums that are involved, all kind of um, headed by the Detroit Zoo, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and then there's a lot of research that's involved in the recovery project as well, mostly through the University of Minnesota. Um, and I'll, again, kind of get into that a little bit more in a little bit. Um, but one of the biggest parts of the project uh, is just monitoring the wild populations that are, um, that are out in their natural habitat right now. Um, so the birds live, like you guys saw, all across the Great Lakes area. 
Um, and so there's a variety of, of different people who are, who are out monitoring the birds. So a lot of them are US Fish and Wildlife staff, some of them are Forest Service staff, a lot of them are volunteers, people volunteering for a variety of those organizations or a variety of different um, private organizations. Um, but the kind of point of all that is to just monitor the populations and also to help protect the areas where the birds are nesting. So um, being able to fence off a lot of areas around the Great Lakes during the breeding season so that the birds are able to more successfully, uh, more likely successfully raise chicks um, and also raise awareness to people around the Great Lakes area, people around those beaches. Uh, a huge part of that is the banding program as part of this. So actually 96 to 98% of uh, piping plovers have bands, which is really amazing because it means that we can keep pretty good track of the birds. Um, and if you can see it, it looks like kind of a lot of hardware on a, on a little bird. Um, but banding is something that's used really commonly in a lot of bird species to, to keep track of populations. Um, we can get information on where the birds are going, um, you know, how many of them there are in a population, you know, where they're going in the winter months, whether or not they're returning to the same places every year to those nesting grounds or to those wintering grounds. Um, so there's a lot of really valuable information that we can collect uh, from looking at those bands. So every piping clover will have uh, an aluminum USGS band, which I think is kind of hard to see on this guy. I don't think you can really see his aluminum band um, that has a nine-digit code. But because that's always going to be really hard to see, you know, even if you have binoculars, they also have these several color bands. Um, and those color combinations can identify individual birds um, so that monitors who are watching nest areas um, who are, or who are looking for the birds in their wintering grounds are able to pretty easily identify an individual bird. Um, and the Piping Clover Project has a whole database of all the individual birds. So if, even if you're just a bird watcher um, and you happen to come across uh, a piping clover and you're able to clearly read their, their bands, um, you can, you can submit that information, and that's, that's really helpful for locating where the birds are. Uh, the Great Lakes piping plovers will always have an orange band, and some of them will have a split orange band that means that they are captive-reared individuals. And again, we'll kind of go in a little bit more into that in a little bit. Um, and so one of the cool things about banding these birds is that you can really keep track of individuals, um, especially people who are monitoring the birds season after season, whether they're volunteers or staff. Um, a lot of times they become pretty attached to individual birds that come back year after year. Um, this guy, Old Man Plover, as he is very affectionately called, um, is a bird that I heard a lot about. Excuse me. I heard a lot about when I was uh, working on the project. Um, he returned to the same shoreline in Sleeping Bear Dunes uh, for 16 years straight. And so all of the um, park rangers and their volunteers who were doing a lot of bird observations um, were always looking for him every year. Uh, he successfully raised, I think, 27 chicks. Um, he I think they, they did the math and collectively he flew about 27,000 miles in the course of those 16 years migrating back and forth from um, his nesting grounds to his wintering grounds. Um, and then, and actually the last year that they saw him was, was 2017 and he was um, uh, nesting with, another, with a female bird and he disappeared. And so they, um, he abandoned his nest, they don't really know what happened to him. 
but the uh, captive rearing team was able to bring him bring that clutch in, and they were actually able to rear uh, his very last chick. Only one of them survived. Um, so now people are really keeping track of of that chick. I can't remember what what the nickname for that one is, um, but almost like a lot of them have nicknames <laughs> that come back year after year. Um, so yeah, like I said, a big part a big part of keeping track of these birds is these monitors that go out and and look for these banded birds and and collect that information. Um, a lot of them, a lot of them are led by uh, park service supervisors, um, or sometimes researchers from University of Minnesota, um, and they're looking for not only uh, looking at bands to try to see kind of who's who uh, out in the nesting grounds and in their wintering grounds, but also especially in those nesting grounds in the Great Lakes area, they're watching nests to see if the birds are taking care of them, to see if they're they're. Um, staying nearby the nests or if they, or there's any chance that they might be abandoning the nest. So because the males and females are both required to take care of the chicks and to guard the nest, a lot of times if something happens to one of the parents, um, the other one will abandon the nest. Um, so all of these monitors are, are very well trained in knowing what to look for as far as what, what means an abandoned nest. If one bird is missing for a long period of time, if neither bird is returning back to the nest for a certain period of time, um, that's when they get in contact with the captive rearing uh, team and they might consider uh, bringing the clutch of eggs in to be captive reared if they, if they think that it's abandoned. Um, and sometimes the birds will just make their nests in really weird places. <laughs> uh, you saw that the nests are they're very simple. They're just kind of little indentations in the ground. Um, but one of the, one of the clutches of eggs that came into the captive rearing center when I was there was a nest that was just laid in the middle of a parking lot. Um, and so there wasn't really a way for them to move the eggs over. The birds wouldn't go back to, um, to take care of the eggs if they did that. So they ended up bringing, bringing those eggs in to be rehabilitated. Um, but that's a big part of what, what the monitoring teams uh, are out there looking for. And then another element of, um, of kind of keeping track of these nesting areas and the birds um, nesting on the shores of the Great Lakes are these exclosures. Um, and this is something that was introduced a couple years into the program um, when monitors were noticing that even when they were you know, keeping people off the beaches, when they were um, you know, able to get areas fenced off from people, um, that they were still seeing cats or foxes or raccoons coming in, scaring away birds, eating eggs. Um, and so they introduced this, this exclosure program where they were actually able to um, surround some of these active nests with fencing that the plovers are easily able to run in and out of, but will keep out larger mammals or um, birds that would come in from up above. There's kind of a, a mesh um, on the top of these exclosures that keep out ravens and um, birds of prey. Um, and those have helped significantly with the success rate of some of these nests in the Great Lake areas. Um, and then the captive chick rearing and release program. This is the part of the program that I was involved in, that the aquarium has been involved in uh, for the past 10 years. Um, and this is another element of the program that wasn't actually originally part of the recovery project. Um, but what was happening in the early 80s when they were first starting this project and they were having monitors out watching, um, watching these nests, they were seeing eggs get abandoned, and they were perfectly viable nests, but something would happen to one of the parents, um, and there wouldn't really be anything that they could do about these eggs. Uh, so what they ended up doing was they brought in keepers from the Detroit Zoo, uh, 
to come in and attempt to rear some of the chicks that they were finding, rear, uh, rear the eggs, hatch them into chicks, um, and then raise them and try to reintroduce them into their natural habitat uh, along with the wild populations. Um, and then year after year after year, they've just seen increased success in that program. Um, and so now it's a pretty big part of the overall program, and it's, it's the part that the aquarium is now, now involved in. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, so really the purpose of the captive chick rearing element of the project is um, you know, to try to supplement the, the successful hatching chicks that, um, that happen every single year, and they are so cute. <laughs> um, the more, more fluffy chick videos to come, you'll see. Uh, so every year nests are inevitably abandoned, um, and with captive rearing we can, we can successfully boost that hatchling population um, by up to 20 individuals, I think was the record uh, for one summer. Um, so the captive rearing program is located at the University of Michigan Biological Station, um, which is such a cool place. <laughs> it was a really, really awesome place to get to spend uh, a little over a week, which is um, how long I was there. Um, it is uh, just a satellite campus for the University of Michigan that's located um, right along this beautiful lake, Lake Douglas. Um, and it's uh, a fully active university campus in the summer. They have, um, so there were undergrad students there the whole time taking classes. Uh, and it's also just an active uh, research institution. So there was, there was a cattail lab that was collecting data, a dragonfly lab, just lots of, lots of really cool stuff going on the whole time. Um, and then they have this really awesome chick rearing facility, um, which actually, it's not this, it's actually kind of right over here. Um, but this is where I got to stay, um, which makes some of the previous people who have gone on, on this trip a little angry because they had to stay in these little cabins <laughs> over the last couple of years, but they've kind of upgraded where the husbandry keepers get to stay uh, on campus. Um, and the way it works is pretty much all throughout the summer, all throughout the breeding season, um, the uh, Detroit Zoo now organizes a whole array of AZA institutions that send keepers, um, and they pretty much just always have at least one or two keepers here um, just in case chicks come in, and or excuse me, in case eggs come in that have been abandoned um, and that they can start incubating them, start attempting to rehabilitate them. Um, but because of that, it's kind of funny. You might, you might be sent there and you might just be kind of hanging out while uh, there's eggs in the incubator. You might be hanging out while there's nothing going on and just waiting to see if, um, if any nests happen to be abandoned while you're there and then you might um, start taking some of the eggs. Um, but it's just really important to always have someone there in case, in case any of that happens. Um, I was really lucky in the time I was there that uh, there were several eggs in the incubators when I, when I was there to, um, to start monitoring. And then about halfway through my time there, about 10 of the eggs all hatched at once. <laughs> so the uh, one other keeper who was there with me, Jessica from the Denver Zoo, and I ended up going from it being a um, not so busy first couple of days to a very, very busy uh, next couple of days while we were there. Um, but the whole process of the, uh, the chick rearing 
starts with incubation. Um, once the eggs have hatched, they go into another sort of incubator called a hatcher um, where they'll ultimately hatch out. Um, from there, they go into a brood box, which is just a small, small kind of heated area um, for the birds to start out in. Um, they graduate to a little sandbox um, that starts to look a little bit more like what their natural environment is going to look like when they are released. Um, then they move to a larger sandbox. Eventually, they have access to an outdoor area, um, and then they move into a lake pen where they have a little bit of access to water just to get them ready for um, what life is going to be like out in their natural habitat when they're released. Um, so like I said, a lot of what we're doing, a lot of what I was doing when I was first there was just taking care of all the eggs that were in the incubators. So I think we had four clutches of eggs that had been brought in from various places around the Great Lakes area while I was there. Um, and a big part of what we were doing every day was just checking up on them. We would candle the eggs. Um, so depending on how far along each of the eggs were, um, we might be checking for signs of development. We might be checking for movement. Um, so this is a little bit of, of what we were doing. So that's, a, that's an egg candler. <laughs> and you just hold the egg right up. And you're able to see, it's a little bit hard to see in this video. Um, but with this one, we were just checking for a little bit of movement. And then you're taking copious notes on all of these eggs, um, you know, what you're seeing every single day, um, and just keeping track of the development of each one. Um, the eggs uh, were each incubating, I think the normal incubation period was about it was like three weeks or so. Um, and so around the end of that time, uh, as, as they were getting a little bit closer, you would move them into the hatcher. Um, and that was also when you would start to see what, we would see what they call pip sites, or little areas on the eggshell where the birds are starting to break through. Um, and then, eventually, you come in and you start to see this. You start to see just a little bit of activity happening in one of the eggs. Um, what you can't hear in this video is uh, the girl from the Denver Zoo and I peeping at the egg um, over and over again, which was something that the, uh, the curator at the Detroit Zoo, a woman named Bonnie, insists that all the keepers do to try to um, be as much like the wild plovers as possible. So <laughs> there's, I, had to, I had to take a lot of it out because it was just too annoying. But in the background of most of my videos is me and Jessica just peeping, <laughs> peeping away. Um, and then after a couple hours, after you would see something like that, uh, whoops, Let's see if I can get it to stay. Um, you see them hatch out. And I, I talked a little bit about how precocial these birds are um, at their very early stages of life. And you can see, I mean, he's only, this one's only been out of its shell for a couple moments and he's already almost ready to stand. So they, they develop very, very quickly. Um, within about 24 hours, they look like this. And let's see if that video will play. There we go. Um, so this is in the brood box. And so 24 hours old, they're already able to kind of hunt around on their own. We're mostly giving them food that doesn't crawl too far away <laughs> to make it easier for them. I know, they're so cute. Uh, so we're giving them different um, blood worms, mealworms, little bits of egg. 
Um, and they're just kind of learning how to kind of explore around. Um, you might notice this over here. This is a feather duster that we put in to the brooder and also in some of the sandbox areas. That's just supposed to mimic um, kind of an adult bird. That's a, a behavior that's common with these um, young shorebirds is running up and kind of huddling under a parent bird. And so that is so that they, they kind of get to experience that even in these um, little boxes. So then this is, let's see if this is, I think they have to, to start that one too. This is my favorite video. So I hid my phone in one of the sandboxes. So again, this is kind of the next one that they would graduate to. And they come up. <laughs> you want me to do the sound effects? <laughs> beep, 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 beep. That's kind of mostly what it sounded like. But a lot of it, it was annoying. <laughs> you wouldn't want to hear it throughout all these videos. <laughs> but yeah, you can see, again, this is, these guys are probably two or three days old. They're really running around. They're hunting more and more. Um, uh, and you also notice that they have little bands on them. And that was one thing um, I forgot to mention that we do right after they hatch, actually, um, is we put a little band on each one. And these aren't going to be their official bands when they're released. These are just so that we can tell them apart and we can still keep track of who's who while they're um, in the chick rearing center. Um, but that was that's another important thing. We also weighed them every day um, just to kind of keep track of their, their progression. There was a lot of a lot of record keeping, and then this is just another kind of tour of the rearing room that I took. Thanks. So this is a brooder. That's one one little guy who hatched a little bit later than everyone else. Um, some more eggs that were still in the incubators that we were watching. Another incubator. And then. Ooh, I think it was, I think we had them around like the high 90s. They were pretty warm. Uh, this is a little actually like ICU unit that we had for a couple birds that we were uh, trying to keep an extra eye on. <clears throat> and then these are the little sandboxes they graduate to after the brooders. And you can see we still have heat lamps in here, but as they graduate to bigger and bigger sandboxes, uh, the heat lamps are a little bit farther and farther away. They still have the little feather duster though. But as they kind of graduate after, after each couple days, um, we're, we're kind of trying to correspond to what they would be doing out in their natural habitat. They would be spending less time kind of huddled up to a parent bird. They would require a little bit less immediate warmth. Um, so moving those heat lamps away little by little. Um, and then this is the kind of largest sand area that we had that also has access to um, an outdoor area. I think my next video is that. I think this one works. Yeah, there we go. So this is um, the chicks that we were taking care of going outside for the first time. And they just run right away. <laughs> they just run all over the place. That's a veterinarian from the Toledo Zoo. Um, and one of the things that you guys might think is interesting watching these videos is that you know we're very present. Um, you know, the, we're not really hiding ourselves too much from the birds. Um, and, and that kind of goes along with just how precocial the birds are and how, also how much they just rely on instinct to kind of um, do the behaviors that they do. Um, so, you know, I, I, I work with mammals a lot. I come from the world of, you know, when you're raising a baby sea otter and people have to wear crazy kind of Darth Vader type outfits in order to not look like a human being and really try to separate, you know, humans from 
from the animals and make it so that they don't affiliate humans with food or, or anything positive like that. Um, with these birds, it's just so kind of intrinsically ingrained in them that there's not a whole lot you have to do. Um, one, one thing that was really remarkable that kind of shows how, how much instinct is, you know, just kind of ingrained in them, um, we would, one thing that we were told to do in our, our kind of protocol was when we were weighing the birds, when we were having to pick them up to weigh them, we would play a piping plover alarm call um, so that they would, so that they would affiliate that call with, you know, something, something bad coming to, coming to grab them. Um, and when we would play it, these birds, having never heard an adult plover, really, um, every single one of them, they were all running around in the sandbox, just dropped to the ground. Just as soon as we started playing it, they all just dropped and just went into total camouflage mode, hide mode. Um, and it was really amazing without ever having heard that before. So it's one of the, you know, their, the, the precocial kind of status of these birds and, and how much they rely on instinct really made them a good candidate for a, a rehabilitation process like this. Um, and then this was the, uh, the next step, which I actually, I actually left before I got to see the birds graduate to the water pen. Um, but it's kind of the same thing. It's a, a big pen outside that um, has access to some of the lake water so that the birds would get an opportunity to start um, hunting some of the insects and crustaceans that were in the water and just, again, get kind of more and more exposed to an environment that would look like what they were um, going to be back out in, in their natural habitat. Um, and then the release day. So again, I wasn't here for this, but um, the birds get released after, um, I believe it's 24 to 27 days when they're able to fly independently on their own. Um, so that's when they'll get their adult bands um, and they'll be released back out into their natural habitat. Um, and they might not necessarily be released back um, where they were found, because a lot of times, first of all, a lot of times the nests were, you know, found in, in undesirable locations, um, or sometimes they would just release them in places that, um, you know, needed a little boost in the, in the population, or, or there, were, there was a lot of consideration that would go into where all of the birds were placed. Um, but I think it would probably have been pretty exciting to see. Um, but a little bit just about the success of this program. So, like I said, in the mid-80s, uh, the birds were at their lowest population-wise in the Great Lakes area. Um, there were about 13 nesting pairs in 1984. Um, and since the beginning of the program, and really especially once um, the exclosure use began, so those, those kind of big cages around the um, wild nests that kept predators away, and when captive rearing began, um, there's been a, a pretty big trend um, and how the birds are doing. Now there's around 70 pairs um, around the Great Lakes area. Um, kind of the same thing, number of chicks successfully fledged in the Great Lakes population, also pretty steep curve. Um, and then this just kind of another, another way to show um, the population. Again, this is historically um, the late 1980s when there were only about 13. Um, and then this is kind of interesting. In 2015, there were actually, I believe it was 71 um, pairs in uh, the Great Lakes area versus 2018, where there were, I think it was 67. There were a couple, a few less pairs. But one of the big things in 2018 was birds started appearing in a couple, a couple new spots that they hadn't been seen in in quite a while. Um, and that's something that a lot of the researchers are really excited about, some of these um, spots that historically haven't seen birds in quite a while. Um, 
a lot of people were talking about this particular Wisconsin site um, when I was up there and, and being really excited about that being the first time birds had, had a, nested there in a really long time. Um, so even though there are, were less successful pairs, uh, or excuse me, less uh, breeding pairs in 2018 um, than the couple previous years, that was a really good indicator seeing um, the birds kind of spread out a little bit. Um, and then some of the research that we have been able to um, garner from, from looking at the birds with their bands and being able to follow them, um, we've learned that very little interbreeding happens between the three populations of piping plovers, even though they intermix during the non-breeding season quite a bit. Um, there's very high site fidelity, both on the breeding and winter grounds, um, so the birds return back to the same sites quite often. Uh, approximately 37% of chicks that fledge survive their first year. You know, so between the breeding grounds and their wintering grounds is about 2,000 miles. You know, it's about 2,000 miles round trip that they have to make every single year. Um, so a lot happens um, to those chicks in, in between that period, during that migratory period. Um, the oldest Great Lake piping plover on record is 16, and that was old man plover that I talked about in the beginning. Um, the plovers don't necessarily return to their hatch site for breeding. Um, the piping plovers are more tied to a territory than a particular mate. So often a bird that has, been, that has successfully raised a clutch of eggs in a particular site um, will return to that site year after year, but not necessarily match up with the same mate. Um, the current migration speed record is less than 45.5 hours, um, which is pretty incredible for these little tiny birds. Um, and the more years a female nests at a given site, the better she is at raising her offspring, the more likely she is to be successful. Um, and why do we care? Why do we care about these little, these little birds? Um, there's a lot of reasons. I think, I think partially just because it's our responsibility that they're kind of in the predicament that they are. Um, as far as why they're important, though, they are indicators of a healthy coastal ecosystem because they require, you know, these really pristine sandy beaches along the Great Lakes area. Um, that makes them, you know, a lot of piping plovers is a good indicator that you have a really healthy coastal lake ecosystem. Um, success with this species can mean success for other similar species. Um, you know, maybe even if you don't think this particular species is important, um, this particular means of bringing all these different kinds of institutions together, husbandry, you know, animal caring and animal um, uh, keep it, you know, keepers um, from zoos and aquariums combined with researchers, combined with fish and wildlife, um, I think is a really, a really incredible um, collaboration. Uh, and I think it could work for other species as well. Um, we don't always know the exact role of a species until they're completely gone either. You know, we know these birds are insectivores. They help with the, you know, control the insect population, like a lot of other shorebirds. Um, but, you know, there's lots of different ways that they could affect their ecosystem that we would never know until they were, until they were gone. Um, and then kind of again, I know I've talked a little bit about this kind of throughout the presentation, but um, just the importance of collaborating with other institutions, different types of institutions collaborating together. Um, I, I think really just being able to kind of utilize the unique skills of, of husbandry staff um, is really, has been really valuable for this program in particular. Um, and then for husbandry staff, in turn, getting experience with wild populations is super valuable. There's so much you get to learn about the animals that you take care of in a captive setting by studying them out in their natural habitat and, and getting to see um, you know, all, the, all the ways that they're different and the same. 
I think that's really, really valuable. Um, and then, you know, the collaboration, not just between researchers and husbandry staff, but between husbandry staff from different institutions. Um, you know, it was really uh, great to, I spent this whole week with um, this awesome girl, Jessica, from the Denver Zoo, and the whole time we were talking about our different facilities, talking about the way we do things at Aquarium of the Pacific versus the way they do things at Denver Zoo and trading stories and, um, you know, that's been happen happening historically at this site for the last 25 years as this program has been going on. Um, and because of that as well, the actual program itself at the facility um, has continued to change and improve as different keepers come in and have new suggestions or um, bring in, you know, ideas from, from their facility. They've been able to really um, make this kind of a fine-tuned system um, there at the, at the rearing center, um, which I think is really amazing. And all in all, it was a really amazing experience for me. Um, and I hope, I hope there are more experiences like it in the future. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you, Katie. Uh, we now have some time for questions. So uh, who has a question? Jerry? <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, you may have said this before I got here, but um, what else made them a good candidate for the rehabilitation program besides them being kind of uh, non real you know relying on instinct yeah I think um, you know I, I, I think really the reason that they were they were picked to be a, a rehabilitation species was just because we were seeing so many abandoned nests that was you know it kind of started out of um, just trying to figure out if there was a way that that they could they could resolve that and um, they happened to I'm not sure who exactly was the connection, but but someone had a connection to the Detroit Zoo, and they were able to to bring in those zookeepers, and I think just kind of see if it worked. Um, the birds themselves, I think, being so precocial, were are a relatively easy bird to easy bird to um, you know rehabilitate and release, and in general, the birds themselves, I think. Um, they're pretty hardy birds other than their nesting habits, which is <laughs> kind of the biggest challenge. But really, I mean, the fact that you, there's only really the, um, you know, the nesting um, part of their life that, that needs to be worried about, I think, I think makes them a, a good candidate to start. And I think really the birds haven't really had an opportunity, we haven't really had an opportunity to see how the plovers do once they've really hit kind of a more stable population. And I don't really know what the magic number is for that. I'm sure, I'm sure someone probably at the University of Massachusetts or something has, has an idea of what, what would make the birds a stable population. But I think um, you know, since the early 1900s, they've been so underpopulated that it's, um, it's been hard for them to kind of come back and to really see, see whether they, they can survive on their own. OK. I enjoyed your um, presentation immensely. I had two things. You mentioned there's four eggs, and that's guaranteed four eggs. But is there a guarantee of the percentage of the sex, male or female? And I had another question asked after that. Is another one more so? I know that there's a current study going on at the University of Massachusetts about sex ratio and what okay. what the percentage is of male, males versus females. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, right now. The other thing had to do with the 36% that um, don't survive. And I was wondering, 
is there any research or studies being done to find out what can be done to reduce that? And is it more so females or males that are surviving? Have, they, have you moved forward to get that percentage higher? And who's trying to help out with that? Thank you. Those, those are really good questions. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure I know the answer to any of it. Um, but if you, the, the Piping Plover Recovery Program website is, is really great and has a lot, of, um, a lot of listings of the current research being done, mostly, again, by um, the uh, University of Minnesota um, uh, researchers. And I know, I know they're, doing, they're looking a lot at, at sex ratios and, and things like that. Um, I'm sure probably some, there's probably someone looking at, at kind of what's being uh, what's happening to them, um, you know, during those migratory um, periods? But yeah, I'm not sure. More questions? Yeah. Yeah. I have to ask this dumb question. It's called a piping plover. So does that refer to their call or something else? Yeah, it, it refers to the the peeping, piping noises that they're going. <laughs> Make me do it, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I was curious um, how much of that coastal habitat in the Great Lakes is protected, and if they're using it, if some of those new sites that they pick up for nesting are within those areas. I, I'm not sure the exact percentage of the coastline that's protected. I know. Um, a lot of the a lot of the coastline that they will um, nest on is is within state or national park ground, and all those areas um, are pretty heavily monitored. And then I know that there are some some areas in you know around public beaches and stuff where they will actually um, fence off certain areas. Um, I don't know too much about the details of, of the success rates of those, though. Um, I know that that the ones that are within state and um, National Park area are very well well protected. More questions? Yeah. I, I have a question. <laughs> the bands that you put around their legs, how do you do that without hurting them? That's a really good question. Um, you use a you use a little tool. It's a, a little metal tool. I'm sure a lot of the bird staff <laughs> bird staff here at the aquarium um, could tell you too. But uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but you basically kind of line up their leg in this little metal, almost like a tiny metal shoehorn, um, and you basically just kind of slide the band on and it uh, narrows out and you just kind of squeeze it on. You have to be really careful, especially with the, the really young birds, but one of the nice things about these birds is, is from the get-go their legs are pretty, as, as far as the rest of them goes, their legs are pretty strong, um, so you can, you can put the bands on pretty easily. Because it seems like it'd be hard to cut one off and put a bigger one on. Yeah, that, I think you use the same, so the bands are, they're not completely, you know, they, they kind of like are a little clasp bracelet almost, or they, you know, you just kind of squeeze them together, and so you can use a tool similar to kind of pry them apart and pull them off. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think we had one more question here. Um, so you said there's not, sorry, you, there's not like a magic number for it, but at, at what point, if any, can you kind of stop the program or do you, is it gonna help them in the long term if the habitat were to stay stable? 
Yeah, there might be a magic number. I, I just am not sure. I, I really, you know, I was only really involved in the kind of um, captive rearing element of it. So everything else is, everything else I'm telling you is just kind of mostly stuff I read or stuff I heard from from being part of the program. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there is some magic number where, where they think the population is stable enough. Because, um, you know, it's, it's not sustainable to, to captive rear them forever and to put exclosures around them forever. But I think um, the idea is to get them at a stable enough population where we feel like they have a fighting chance on their own um, because their population has been so diminished for so long because of human activity. Um, but yeah, I, you'd, have to, you'd probably have to talk to a, to a researcher. <laughs> but really good question. Any other final question? Erin. Um, you mentioned that these are in the Great Lakes area. Is it a, di a distinct subspecies than other piping plovers that live around the country? And if so, do you know how those other subspecies are doing in the other regional birds? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, I believe there are actually two technical subspecies. I think it's the East Coast subspecies and then the Great Lakes and the Northern Plains are another subspecies, I'm pretty sure. Um, you kind of, the way that they're looked at normally is the distinct populations, but I think as far as subspecies go, um, those, the Great Plains and the Great Lakes populations are considered a subspecies, although none of them really interbreed um, out, in the, out in their natural habitats. Um, what was the second part of your how, how, how are they doing? Um, so both the, great, the northern Great Plains and the East Coast populations are, uh, I believe, listed as at least threatened. So none of them are doing as poorly as the Great Lakes piping plover population. Um, but as a whole, they're still, they're still a concern. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, Katie. Hi. Hi. <laughs> you had mentioned that um, your schedule got really busy when you started having chicks. You said 10 chicks. I was just curious as to what type of daily schedule you had to keep and how many people were on that schedule to raise those 10 chicks. Yeah, that's, um, so it was, uh, at the time that they all hatched, it was just uh, Jessica and me, the, the girl from the Denver Zoo and, and myself. Um, and it was, um, the schedule was pretty much every, well, when they were first hatching, we were going out and checking them quite frequently just to kind of see what, what their status was. There were actually a couple eggs we, needed, we ended up needing to assist hatch. So for a while, we were pretty much just spending all day out in the rearing room, um, kind of going back and forth between starting feeding schedules and, and also just constantly monitoring some of these last eggs that were scheduled to hatch. Um, but from the times they started hatching, um, there is a period where the birds, uh, or it's not recommended that they eat for, I think it was like eight to 10 hours right after they hatch. And then pretty much after that, we were refreshing their food uh, every one to two hours. Um, and so between all the birds, once, once all the birds were hatched and we could kind of place them in the different areas, it, was, it got a little bit more structured. But it was about every, every one to two hours um, that we were kind of refreshing their water, re replacing their food, um, deciding if we were moving them to, to another spot. Um, and then there are also just kind of daily chores to do out in the, um, in the rearing room. So taking care of all the insects that we were giving them as food um, and just kind of the daily cleaning tasks. So they actually had a, they had a whole very regimented schedule um, laid out for us um, that we kind of just had to kind of set up on our own. Oh, as far as the day? Yeah, I think, I think we were starting at, 
we're starting at five or six and going until six or seven <laughs> nine. Yeah, and uh, Katie maybe mentioned about the storm. Yeah, so I was telling Sandy at dinner about, um, I think, Two days into the chicks hatching, there was a crazy thunderstorm at night. It was my, my first Midwestern thunderstorm. Um, and we essentially had to stay up the entire night because if the power went out, then the incubators and all the brooders and all the heat lamps, um, we were going to need to uh, switch them over to a generator. Um, and so we needed to make sure that we were able to do that in time before any of the birds got too cold. Um, so we basically had a had an entire night where we each just set an alarm every hour <laughs> and, and just woke up to make sure that power was still on. Um, so it was, it was a tiring couple of days. <laughs> Very dedicated. <laughs> any other questions? Yes. What are the predators that they face? Um, yeah, so similar to, um, or so not similar, but I, uh, mostly, mostly raptors. Um, a lot of times, uh, I, m I mentioned it in the beginning, but snowy owls have been a bigger and bigger problem for, for the adults um, because of rodent populations not doing as well in the Midwest, I guess, like especially in the last couple of years as it's been colder. Um, They've been seeing a lot more snowy owls coming in and picking off parents. And it's one of the reasons there were two different clutches of eggs that came into the station while I was there because at least one parent, they had rangers or, or monitors had seen a snowy owl pick off one of the parents. Um, but other, other raptors, um, I'm sure other probably mammals as well. Yeah, Frank. Here, I can get. So when the one parent, if it was picked off or maybe abandoned the nest and then the second parent maybe was still around, did they ultimately abandon just because the parents physically couldn't sustain themselves? Is that why they would leave? Yeah, usually, you know, I don't, I don't know the exact reasoning, but usually it was pretty common once, once one bird disappeared that the other one would pretty shortly after disappear. That was, that was something that they would see quite a, quite a bit. Okay, well, thank you very much, Katie. Wonderful presentation. <laughs> Your passion for conservation and for the great things you do here definitely shows through. Thank you for that. And I think the Piping Plover Project is obviously a great example of how zoos and aquariums are continuing to assist in the recovery of endangered species. So we're very proud of this project and thank you. Katie, it was a wonderful presentation. So um, that's the end of tonight's presentation, but join us next Wednesday, February 13th, for our next lecture. We're going to have James Gasaldi here. He is going to be sharing current trends and approaches in animal care and welfare um, for zoos and aquariums. So that should be an intriguing presentation. Please join us next Wednesday, February 13th. Thank you all so much. Have a good evening.